Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. PCOS and fertility and the impact that it has on ovulation and periods. But one of the things that is really important to understand is that there is a huge metabolic component to PCOS. And today's guest is going to talk about that. Her name is Nisha Patel, and she's a board certified obesity medicine doctor who specializes in cardio metabolic health. Dr. Patel is going to explain exactly what that means and why it's so relevant to PCOS early in this episode, so I'm not going to spoil it for you. She's going to break it all down for us. Our conversation today was all about PCOS and the metabolic impact that it has on the body. We touched on topics including diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, how to prevent and manage those conditions, as well as weight management. We also spoke about weight loss medications in depth. This is a hot topic right now. I get a lot of questions about Ozempic, Wagovi, Munjaro, all of those medications. And so toward the end of our conversation about medications, we started diving deeper into the new wave of medications and we kind of got cut off. We ran out of time. And so what we did is we picked back up on the topic of weight loss medications on an IG live, on Instagram live. So I come combined these two conversations for you here today. So you're going to hear some overlap of the information about medications. So towards the end of the episode, we talked about medications. And then in the beginning of the IG live, which is the second part of today's episode, we went back and reviewed what we had talked about. And so she dives really deeply into weight loss medications, who they're for, what the side effects are, how to know if they're working for you, what other things you need to understand before starting on one of these medications. And And I think that you're going to find tremendous value in all the information and tips that she shared with us today. So just be prepared. There's a little bit of repetition with the weight loss medications part towards the end, but I think it's always helpful to hear something twice and let it really, really sink in. Okay. Are we good? Let's dive in. Hey, Dr. Patel, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Daphne. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So I've been following you online and I see your content and I knew that I had to have you on the show. I totally harassed you in DMs, but eventually you no <laughs> eventually we contact. Yeah. We found the time. I'd love for you to get us started by introducing yourself and share a little bit about the work that you do. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Nisha Patel. I am a physician and I'm board certified in clinical lipidology, um, internal medicine, obesity medicine, and culinary medicine. And I am a practicing physician here in the Bay Area in California. And I, I wear actually two different hats in my clinical practice. And so I started off by taking care of patients, mostly in the hospital, you know, individuals that would get admitted because they were having exacerbations of their chronic diseases, whether that be you know, liver disease or kidney disease or pulmonary disease, heart disease. And I realized that through my work in that arena, that I really just wanted to figure out how to help patients prevent these complications from happening. 
And around the same time, I had learned about the field of obesity medicine and decided to get board certified. And through my work within my organization, I you know, developed a practice where I'm now seeing patients on the outpatient setting as well, taking care of them. You know, Cardiometabolic health is my passion. If you're not familiar with that term, this is a subset of disease processes um, like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, or high blood pressure that tend to run together in individuals and there's common pathways of development. So really trying to prevent, you know, a prevent those conditions and or prevent the complications of those conditions is what I really focus on in my practice. And through that work, I've I've been able to really just see kind of like the breadth of um, chronic disease you know, management from prevention to taking care of those patients that are having what we call end organ dysfunction or exacerbations of their illness and, and really trying to help them improve their health outcomes. And at the end of the day, really their quality of life. That's what this is all yeah. about. And so, yeah, my work has been really uh, kind of atypical for the average physician, but I'm so glad that, you know, it led me here. I, I joke and I tell people that when I first left my training, I wanted to be an oncologist, which is a cancer doctor, which is, I'm kind of far, far away from that field. But I will say through my work, I am able to help patients reduce their risk of developing certain types of cancer. And so again, it, you know, it's all connected. And I think that it's really, really important work that needs to be done. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of individuals out there in the modern medical system, I should say, doing it, but lots and lots of, lots of work to be done. Yeah. I, we see a lot more doctors who specialize in a specific body part, or it's kind of like more, you know, this is a stomach doctor. This is a, you know, gastroenterologist. This is a skin doctor. It seems like yours really encompasses a lot of different systems in the body. Yeah. And I would say like, you know, if somebody came to me and asked me about rashes or dermatology issues, definitely not probably the right person to diagnose those um, really complicated skin conditions. But you're right. You know, when I talk about cardiometabolic medicine, and there's kind of been a push to make this a specialty in the United States, it's not really quite there yet. But there's been this call to action because a lot of care for patients like with diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure, obesity, fatty liver disease happens in silos within the healthcare system. Everyone's kind of individually doing this work. And what we realize is that, I mean, the care of these patients is very similar. Like there's a strong emphasis on really lifestyle modifications and then adding medical management when needed. But of course, I will be the first to tell you that as doctors, we're not the best, nor do we have the ample resources or time to really emphasize those lifestyle factors. And this is where collaboration with, you know, our registered dietitian, physiotherapist, behavioral health specialist is really important. But when we talk about cardiometabolic medicine, it's encompassing all of these individuals that are in that I just mentioned and more to create that comprehensive care model for patients so that they don't have to see five different specialists for their you know, medical conditions. They're able to come in and, and really see one person with all of this ancillary support to help improve their health outcomes. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think it's it so needed. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so, so needed, amazing. and especially for PCOS, because a lot of the conditions you just mentioned, as we know, you know, I'm sure you know PCOS is a syndrome that can manifest differently, but a lot of women really struggle with the metabolic side of things, and it can progress from one thing to another with insulin resistance to prediabetes, diabetes, heart disease, okay. risk, fatty liver. So all of those things tie directly back to PCOS. And I think this is the specialty we all need in order to really manage this condition and not have to, like you said, bounce around from one doctor to the next and really no one's communicating and the patient's kind of left to their own Google searches, which is really tough. 
It is tough. And I know I really do see PCOS as a metabolic disease. And there's a lot of different symptoms and manifestations of the disease process. Of course, I think historically, maybe some of the messaging around PCOS has been like, well, we'll see you when you want to get pregnant. Here's your metformin and be on your way. Yeah. But in reality, it's exactly what you just mentioned. Well, these, these individuals have insulin resistance, which raises the risk of diabetes and other comorbid complications like heart disease and and we really want to try to help. It's not just about fertility. That is a big part of it. And I understand a very important, you know, if, if somebody desires to have children and what we know is that some of these lifestyle factors can really help uh, improve their chances of having children and also reducing the risk of these metabolic diseases. I think that's, you know, really important to think of it from that comprehensive standpoint versus like, yeah, it's just a fertility problem and we'll see you later when you want to get pregnant. Yeah. And I have a lot of clients who come to me and say, you know, I went to the doctor and they said, well, you have PCOS, you don't look like it. Mm. And it's kind of like, really with metabolic conditions, there is no way to tell, right? You can't look at someone and say their blood sugar is XYZ or their blood pressure is such and such. A hundred percent. I often tell patients that you can never look at an individual and just based on how they look, like determine what their health is. Just can't. I give the patients examples of, so I'm South Asian, I'm Indian. And in my community, there's individuals may not assume that they have, you know, rip-roaring diabetes or heart disease. Yeah. And based on how they look, and again, that is not a measure of, you know, health or a metric of health is your physical appearance. But there's a lot of different factors that play a role in disease development. It's not just like, well, you look like this, so you must have X, Y, and Z. There's genetics, there's environmental factors, there's lifestyle factors. And it's so important. So I give you know patients the example, like uh, I had high cholesterol, like when I was in my early thirties and like, perhaps somebody would be very surprised in hearing that about me. I didn't have the most health promoting lifestyle. I had to you know make the same changes that I talked to my patients about. And it's really important not to judge like somebody's health status based on what they look like. It's so, so important not to do that. Yeah. My grandma was like four foot nine, 90 pounds max, and she had such high cholesterol. And there was always the conversation of how is this tiny person who barely eats anything has high cholesterol? Right? We cannot assume we cannot ever make those judgments. And I think that really falls under the umbrella of just stigma and the, you know, conversations that are so ignorant around health. A lot of patients, you know, they internalize that stigma. They think, well, there's something wrong with me if I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z, and that I'm doing something wrong. When in reality, there's so many other factors that are at play. And that's something that I try to explain to patients that look, there's genetic factors. There's, you know, your family history plays a role. Like it's not your fault. Like, Mm -hmm. Yes, there are certain things that we all can do to help reduce our risk of developing multiple chronic diseases. I think it goes without saying that there are a lot of lifestyle factors we could all work on comprehensively. And, but that doesn't mean that, you know, even after that, if if you continue to have complications or your disease gets worse, like I really try to emphasize that's not your fault. Yeah. Like some patients are going to need medications or they're going to need other management. And I think just really trying to reduce that stigma and that guilt is so, so important. It's really, you know, for me, like pivotal in my care, like that I connect with my patients and make sure they understand that this is a very safe space to come in and talk about their health with me. Yeah. And it's not nutrition or medication. It could be both, yeah, right? Like, it, could be both. it should be both. It should <laughs> be know? both. Yeah. yeah. It should be both when needed. Like, I mean, lifestyle, like, I, you know, I refer to registered dietitians. I think that they're a really, you know, important part of the care team. And it really, 
frankly, just sucks that like a lot of people don't have access to these comprehensive care models and maybe they don't have the funds to, you know, pay out of pocket to see other practitioners or other healthcare. Yeah. Unfortunately, the insurance coverage is a whole different issue. And we won't get into that right, today. Right. But very important to, you know, really utilize all the members of the healthcare team to improve our patients' health outcomes. Yes. Yeah. I'd love for you to share. So say someone with PCOS came in to see you, what are some of the red flags that you would look at if you were to help them reduce risk of any metabolic disease, whether that's diabetes, progression to diabetes, or reducing cholesterol, metabolic syndrome. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the metabolic syndrome first to explain to our listeners what that is exactly. But what are some of the red flags or things that you look out for when you're evaluating someone? Yeah. So, you know, whenever a patient comes in to see me, it's really this comprehensive medical assessment that I go through. And I, I and I thankfully have the time to go through that. That includes, you know, not only the patient's personal history, their family history. I also take a um, pregnancy related history too. There are certain conditions that appear in pregnancy, like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia that can actually raise, you know, people's risk of developing like diabetes or heart disease later in life. You know, we do lab work as as necessary to really kind of get that whole picture of like, what is this person's health status? In addition, I'm also talking to them about their quality of life. What is their sleep like? What is their mobility like? What's their stress like in their life? Like what's contrib- what are these external contributors to their health, especially stress? I don't think we talk about it enough. You know, a lot of different life stressors can influence patients' ability to, you know, follow lifestyle changes or carry through with the medical plan. And so it's really looking at all of these different factors and using that to make my assessment of, okay, what is this person's like risk of developing diabetes or heart disease? Or do they have baseline non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Are they at high risk of progressing to developing, you know, complications from this? So not every, if you're not familiar with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it's often called the hepatic manifestation of metabolic syndrome. You know, it's basically where there's excess deposition of adipose tissue, or that's the medical term for that in the liver, which can lead to inflammation in certain individuals and then scar tissue buildup and liver failure for certain individuals, not everybody, but certain individuals. So for me specifically, I'm also taking that history. Do they have a strong family history of this happening? Like how aggressive do we need to be with their risk factor management? And then, you know, coming up with a plan on what is the patient capable of doing at this stage and do we need to add medical management? And as far as like what metabolic syndrome is, I kind of think about this as a cluster of risk factors. Um, there's five different risk factors out there, including an elevated blood sugar, blood pressure, a waist circumference, low HDL, and elevated triglycerides. And these cluster of risk factors, if present, if, if an individual has this classic diagnosis is made, if they have three out of five of these cluster of risk factors, that they're at higher risk of developing heart disease or stroke or diabetes down the line. So if I start seeing these cluster of risk factors, and I am seeing them in younger and younger patient populations, this is where that frank you know, conversation is had. Like, first, I want to make sure they understand like these are risk factors. This doesn't mean that they are going to develop the disease down the line, but these are risk factors that we can work on together to try to reduce their risk. Because at the end of the day, I always tell my patients, this is about helping you live your like healthiest, longest, and happiest life. This isn't about like, you know, achieving a certain body size or shape or, you know, looking a certain way. This is about you being able to have the best quality of life and the best health that you can in the long term. So yeah, taking all those factors into account and really trying to come up with the best treatment plan. 
And I think the best part about it is that all of those conditions or risk factors that you just mentioned are, first of all, reversible, correct me if I'm wrong. And secondly, much of it is in our control because lifestyle plays such a huge role. Yeah, lifestyle is a foundation. I, and I think that message got lost somewhere in medical school for a lot of doctors. It's yeah. not, so, I don't blame my colleagues at all. You know, it's just not in our training. It's not the way we were like brought up to think. It's changing. You know, I think the next generation of physicians, even my generation is really starting to recognize the kind of bringing that part of the piece back into the conversation. Because if you look at all of our national guidelines, like says lifestyle is the foundation, but you know, whether that translates into clinical practice or how it does is a different story. And so you're right. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do or work on as individuals to help improve those risk factors so that we can, you know, prevent some of the complications down the line. Very important. Yeah. You mentioned doctors, your colleagues. (laughs) Let's get into the conversation about doctor visits and the experience. And this is a pretty universal experience for women with PCOS. And I hear this so often where women get really discouraged by these conversations where whether that's the weight struggle or keeping blood sugar under control, it pretty much always comes back to personal responsibility where we know that there are so many other factors that are coming into play, especially when you have a chronic condition like PCOS. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what those variety of factors are. You touched on it a little bit, but specifically around weight gain, what are the factors or reasons someone may have a weight struggle that are not related to directly what they're eating? Because, you know, just to kind of make my point here, Women with PCOS often get the messaging that it's their fault or they're too lazy or that whatever diets they've done, they haven't done them well enough or hard enough. And they just need to try a little bit harder and everything will work out when they lose the weight. So let's kind of open up this can of worms here and talk about all the things that are wrong about that. Yeah. So the old adage or that advice of like, eat less, move more is not helpful. And I, you know, apologize on behalf of my profession if any of you have gotten that that horrible advice, because first off, it's like not good advice. It's not nuanced. It doesn't take into account personal factors. And then when we're talking about weight management and specifically, I'm going to speak about the chronic disease of obesity, you know, obesity is a disease, a chronic disease. There are actual biological changes that are happening in the body. And a lot of that is occurring at the level of the brain. Like the brain is actually very involved in obesity pathogenesis. And a lot of people don't recognize that. And I should mention that my other background, my undergrad, I have a formal degree in neuroscience and I never thought I would be bringing this knowledge back into this part of my life because it's so fascinating. But you know, there, there are actual biological changes that are happening in the body, which are defending, you know, a higher weight and making it very difficult, not only to lose weight, but maintain that weight in the long term. And so individuals that have ever gone through a program, or maybe they've, you know, tried to reduce their weight in the past might have experienced some changes such as increasing hunger, or they're not feeling satiated in between meals like they were previously. And it just gets harder and harder and harder to um, not only lose weight, but then when they're at their healthy weight to maintain that, or they hit a plateau mm-hmm. and that's biology. Like that's not something I can't go and tell my, my hunger hormone ghrelin to just stop making right. me hungry. You know, I wish. And so that's where, you know, that conversation around like personal responsibility is, I will say that 
to an extent, everyone has some personal responsibility to their health, like wear your seatbelts, sure. don't yeah. smoke, don't drink excessively. Like, but the part that it literally doesn't account for is biology, like true neurohormonal changes that are happening in the body. And we can't just control those with our quote unquote willpower. You know, there's things in the environment we can do to help influence uh, and create a more health promoting environment for ourselves. But at the end of the day, like this is, this is a disease, there's actual changes. And so especially in my clinic, when I explain that to patients, it's almost like a, it's like liberating for them to hear that because I think their entire lives they've been told, Hey, you just need to eat less and move more. Or like, just go lose the weight through sensible dieting and exercising, which are, again, is not helpful. As far as like other factors, like there's societal factors that play a role. I think that there's a lot of pressure on women in our society, especially if you have children are trying to balance different aspects of your life. And when you think about who the nutrition gatekeeper is in the household, it's oftentimes women and they're kind of responsible for, and I'm not making any generalizations here. This is just what, you know, has been observed and like a society standpoint that they're often the ones that are doing a lot of the the household work, the childcare. They're also responsible for putting meals on the plate or, you know, shuttling food or getting food into, into their children. And so it's difficult. There's a lot of different factors. And that's not something that, again, like people can always control. You know, you have to work for a living. You know, I went to the White House Health, Hunger, Nutrition listening like sessions. And it was very, very interesting to like kind of hear from people all over the country. And just this one story just like really sticks in my mind is that there was a mom, she had like two or three children and she literally was suffering from, you know, food insecurity and she would go hungry every, you know, every night so she could feed her children, which meant that she wasn't feeding herself the most um, health promoting food, but she was shamed. You know, she just needed to lose weight because she had Mm -hmm. obesity. But in reality, these other factors were at play that were not in her control and she was doing her best. And so I get really passionate and really irked (laughs) whenever I see, you know, like, Kind of what I consider elitist messaging around food, because there's a lot of um, challenges that people are experiencing in society that contribute to, you know, ultimately their health. This, this is, you know, social determinants of health. There's biological factors, there's genetic factors. And so, you know, when we say it comes down to personal willpower and that's it, that's wrong. It's wrong to yeah. think about it that way. Yeah. And I do think it's a relief for a lot of people to realize that it's a condition in and of itself, right? Weight gain and being at a heavier weight is something that does change your biology. It's not just something that, you know, boils down to someone's appearance, right? That's not what it's about. Not especially with PCOS. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, actually, what do you think about health at every weight? So as you know, there's a movement to really optimize people's health, regardless of their weight. And that allows people at heavier weights to reduce risk of disease, However, me personally and professionally, I do believe that, like you said, weight in and of itself does contribute to metabolic risk. And so I'd love to get your thoughts about health at every weight and in your practice and in your experience, how feasible it is and how well does this approach work? Yeah, I think that no matter what we look like, no matter what our weight is, we can all practice healthy habits. I absolutely agree with that. I do not think that looking at somebody's body shape and size, you know, dictates what their health status is. And I also say, you know, for me, when I explain it to patients that when we're talking about weight, I say 
treating the chronic disease of obesity leads to weight loss versus weight loss being the health behavior or the the kind of the, the, goal. the going after directly. We're trying to treat the underlying neurohormonal changes from a really comprehensive approach with, you know, again, nutrition, physical activity, stress management, sleep, behavior change, medications, and other um, things when needed. And so when I explain it to them that way, they do, again, feel very liberated and free of some of the stigmatizing language that they've encountered from others in society. And when we talk about weight, I wish there was, you know, body composition testing actually helps with this. But what we're specifically focused on, personally, me, is excess adiposity or excess body fat. Like, I don't want people to lose a bunch of lean muscle mass or a disproportionate amount of lean muscle mass. We're really specifically looking at excess adipose tissue, because we know this is just science and we know that adipose tissue is not, it's not just, you know, blobs of like fat cells that are just sitting there together. There's a lot of hormones that are secreted. There's a lot of um, cytokines that are secreted. They're communicating with other parts of our body. And it's also not about like just storing excess adiposity in your body. It's also about where you're storing it too. So we know that, you know, adipose tissue in the central abdomen, especially um, visceral adipose tissue, which is the, the tissue that is actually inside of organs like and surrounding our organs, like our heart, our pancreas, our liver is particularly inflammatory and really um, can lead to metabolic complications. And so, you know, I really think about this from like a science-based approach that, again, we're not just trying to target a specific number on the scale. I want to improve your health outcomes. So whatever healthy weight that you feel you're best at and where your metabolic markers are improving that's where we we would consider or try to aim for. And so there's a lot about like the, the health at every weight or um, health at every size movement that a lot of messaging that I agree with. There's a lot of also, you know, extreme messaging on both sides, I will say that I don't agree with because I think we have to also understand that, you know, when there's a patient, like when there's a patient in front of me that is on the verge of developing, you know, scar tissue in their liver, do I look at that person and not offer them the most evidence-based treatment? Of course not. I, I have, you know, it's my duty as a physician to offer them the full gamut of treatment to help prevent those complications. And I think you know, certain individuals in the movement that have extreme voices may not understand that as key aspect of it. You know, these are patients that are very sick and they need help. And they need help. So would now. that treatment include weight loss? So that treatment would include the comprehensive approach to try to reduce their body adiposity, which is weight loss. That's that's part of it, right? Mm -hmm. And then also focusing on those healthy behaviors. So lifestyle changes for me are very important. You know, like we don't just prescribe like medications and then send patients on their way for six months and then kind of see them back. I, I don't do that. We really work on addressing these underlying factors, especially stress, like I said, stress or you know, if patients have uh, certain conditions that are contributing, or if they're on medications that are weight promoting, we, we address all of those factors. So taking that comprehensive approach, but we know in clinical studies that a modest reduction in body weight, which translates into reduction in excess body adiposity can improve health outcomes. Like we're not talking about like a 50% total body weight loss here. We're talking about five to 10%. We see really drastic improvements in blood sugar and triglycerides and, you know, reducing risk of developing diabetes and 
removal of that adipose tissue from the liver to help reduce the risk of progressing to later stages of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, reducing heart disease risk, reducing blood pressure. I've taken patients off of blood pressure medications, which to me is very fulfilling. (laughs) So I think we have to really bring the science part back into the conversation. I think it's not right to say that any form of intentional weight loss is like potentially harmful. Of course, if there's underlying issues as far as, you know, unintentional weight loss are concerned, or people are not doing, or they have underlying disorders that need to be addressed prior to working on weight management, that absolutely has to happen. Like we do not want anyone unintentionally losing weight. That's a, that's a red flag. I get, I've had some patients referred to me that when I talk to them more, they've had unintentional weight loss. And we're like, uh-uh, absolutely. We are not talking about weight loss here. We need to work you up and figure out why this is happening. Like this, not all weight loss is good. I hundred percent agree with that, but should we fault somebody for wanting to improve their health outcome? And if there's no other treatment options, I shouldn't say no other treatment options, but more robust option, I should say, then absolutely we should try to use all the tools available. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I want to ask you a little bit about lifestyle modifications that you touched upon to reduce metabolic risk. And then I want to talk about weight loss medications because uh-huh. they are a hot topic. topic. Yes. Yeah. So what are some of the highly effective ways to reduce metabolic risk factors or to reduce metabolic disease risk that you, you've you seen to be really successful for people? Yeah, I think trying to incorporate more health promoting foods in place of maybe more calorie dense foods that are more prevalent in our society. Like I I really, so everyone knows I am plant-based, but I'm not dogmatic <laughs> about that. I work with my patients with whatever resources, dietary pattern they follow to you know incorporate as many health promoting foods as possible. And these are foods that we've all grown up hearing about like fruits and vegetables and you know, legumes and beans and lentils and nut seeds, like foods that we're not eating enough as a society. And I think that trying to incorporate more of those foods into one's dietary pattern can be beneficial for reducing heart disease risk, helping with blood sugar management. A lot of these foods are quote unquote, low glycemic, you know, can help with blood sugar management. And we see those improvements with diet alone. You know, we're not even talking about weight reduction or weight loss here. Right. So when it comes to nutrition, just really trying to first understand what their dietary pattern is that they're following. What are they capable of doing? What are their resources? What are their cultural and religious factors? All of these things have to be taken into account. I think think dietitians do a really good job with obviously uh, assessing these factors. And so really creating that personalized approach, but just really just focusing on the basics of what we've learned about as society, as far as like what we consider health promoting foods and trying to find enjoyable ways of getting more of those on the plate. And I think that's where like, I think one piece of the puzzle that we don't talk enough about is like the culinary aspect of it, you know, like how to flavor and and like really make these health promoting foods enjoyable. Cause like, I don't enjoy steamed broccoli, but I like it roasted. I'll put it in my tacos. We'll saute it. We'll stir fry it. Like there's so many ways to eat, you know, eat food, but it's just getting that confidence with um, the culinary skills is really important. I think it's missing from the conversation. So nutrition, obviously very important when it comes to physical activity. I think a lot of people are like, I just, you know, it's all about the cardio I'm doing cardio, but don't forget about your resistance training. (laughs) Don't forget about it. It's so important. I don't think we talk enough about how important resistance training is for preservation of lean muscle mass. I mean, we're all losing a a little bit of, you know, we're all losing lean muscle mass as we age, of course, with weight loss or treatment of obesity. I always, I talk to my patients about this every single visit that 
you are going to lose lean muscle mass, but we want to prevent you know losing excess lean muscle mass, especially if you're at higher risk or have comorbidities. So really incorporating you know adequate protein intake spread across your meals. That's different for everybody. And then also resistance training. And so I, I tell people, if you're not used to resistance training, I mean, sometimes I refer to physical therapy to get patients started, to make sure they have the right form. There's some really great YouTube videos out there for your resources. If you want something more structured, I mean, I personally, I use the Peloton app. That's not like the bike app. It's the app that's like on your phone. And they have these like 10 minute, like resistance training. I call them resistance training snacks. And I do that because I don't enjoy resistance training. I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't enjoy it, but I do it because it's important. So don't forget the resistance training. You know, your muscle is a big sink for blood glucose, blood glucose management. So don't forget that because we want to preserve as much lean muscle mass as we can as we um, get older, especially when women go through menopause, they have a change in body composition. And especially for women that are going through menopause and postmenopausal, I'm like, get those weights out, get those resistance bands out, turn up the exercise resistance on your like stationary bike, like do what we need to do to get, you know, some load onto your muscles. It's really, really important. Sleep, I think is one underappreciated aspect of metabolic health. So we know that individuals that have poor sleep quality or they have sleep deprivation where they're sleeping, you know, like less than six hours a night, they really can suffer from some severe metabolic consequences. They're, you know, heart disease risk rises. They can have poor blood glucose management. When it comes to obesity, there's pretty tightly controlled studies that show that even with like short-term sleep deprivation, it results in excess calorie intake during the daytime. And specifically yeah, those cravings are raging. Yeah, calorie dense <laughs> food, you know, foods that we may be trying to um, be more mindful around. And so sleep is so important. I definitely think that we don't talk about it enough. Now, obviously, if you have small children, you have a newborn, do your best. Like I'm not even going to sit here and pretend to know you know, what that is like right now. Um, I'll hopefully be in your camp one day <laughs> knowing that, but you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of factors we can't control. And there's some things that we can like scrolling on our phone at night. I'm pretty strict. Like I talked to my patients about screen time. It's, it's easier said than done. Obviously there's a lot to, to work on here, but sleep is so important. I think if the sweet spot is really aiming for that seven to nine hours of sleep. Yeah. Seven is your minimum if you can. And, you know, we just, we start small, like just start shifting your bedtime by like 20 minutes, a half an hour. Like I set a timer on my phone for 9 PM. That's when I'm supposed to put my phone away. It's hard. Yeah. Like last night it was 920 when I put it away. So, but I am actually trying because I, I, you know, I have to practice what I quote unquote preach to my patients. So trying to put the screens away, trying to read a book, especially if patients are tossing and turning in the middle of the night when they wake up, I always tell them, do something boring in dim light. So get your like calculus book out from high school and then <laughs> light read it. I'm, you, you're more likely to fall back asleep than just tossing and turning. So we talk about sleep hygiene, stress management, stress is a trigger for a lot of unhealthy behaviors because you know, you're, you get kind of tired from all of this, your brain essentially gets really tired from all of the stress or that thinking or that constant kind of ruminating and you may not be able to kind of exert the same amount of control over some of the, the healthier behaviors that you're trying to practice. And so, you know, I, I tell my patients, like, if, if there's an underlying mental health disorder, we want to make sure we address that. We want to make sure we refer you to the right person to get treatment for that. If there's certain life stressors that are happening, I tell my patients, like, look, stress is going to happen. We should go from, you know, trying to say that, okay, we're just going to try to never like, like, we're going to try to prevent it from just understanding that it is going to happen. So how are we going to work through that? 
things are going to happen. They just are. They happen to all of us. I wish I could say that we could always prevent stress, but we can't. So I talk to my patients about setting boundaries and yes. um, sure that they're you know seeking therapy if if that's if they want to or if they're able to and have the resources to do that. Stress is something I ask about every visit. So one thing that we I think doesn't get appreciated is just how much that influences the ability to carry out a healthy lifestyle or healthy behaviors. So those are kind of like the main things I talk about lifestyle wise. You know that's a lot to yeah. work on. So it's definitely for someone to get started with. Yeah. Yeah. It's for someone to get started with. And I think, you know, we, we work on it in a stepwise fashion. My, some of my patients have more limitations in their mobility. I'm not going to be like, okay, we'll go get on the Stairmaster for 30 minutes. Or, you know, we may work on just seated resistance training exercises to start off with. And so really just trying to meet people where they're at, what their resources are and what their abilities are is really important. Yeah. I just want to say something about exercise and being comfortable going to the gym or doing some of the movements. I think that, like you said, you have to meet yourself where you're at, meaning you have to feel comfortable with what you're doing. You have to feel good about your effort and not be self-conscious. And so inside my program, we recently talked about being body conscious and moving your body in public spaces. And I think that doing something that may not be your idea of what you should be doing for exercise, but it helps you move more. It helps you reduce sedentary time. It does more than you did before. That's enough, right? Absolutely. I mean, move your body with joy, right? Like we're not like exercise should never feel like a punishment or something you have to do, or you're, you have to do it this way because this is what your neighbor's doing. Right. I often ask like, what did you enjoy doing? Is it Zumba? Is it like spin class? Do you like to just take walks? You know, anything is better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can do things that are everyday things like walking in your neighborhood or walking your dog. Maybe you pick up the pace a little bit. That's already making progress. And so I think we all need to reduce expectations of ourselves. We we set really, the bar is pretty high for a lot of people. And I think especially with social media and seeing what other people are doing, what celebrities are doing, it becomes really all consuming. And there's, it seems like no one can ever reach quote unquote, the ideal. And so I say, forget that. Let's not even worry about it. You do what you are comfortable with. As long as you feel like you're making progress and doing more or something better than you did before, you're golden. That's all you got to do. Yeah. I love that. That's exactly my philosophy when it comes to movement. I mean, it's what you enjoy, what you can do. And it's, I tell patients like, look, what we're doing right now, what we're talking about, we're trying to set you up to do it for the rest of your life. This is not like a one and done thing. Like we're just going to do it for like, you know, six months and then be done. Like this is why the sustainability of the approach is so important. Yeah. I had a client once she came in and she said, listen, I started going to the gym twice a day. I go an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. What do you think? And I said, I hate it. Yeah, absolutely hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I always, I've been asked when I hear that, I'm like, or if I hear something similar, I'm like, is that sustainable for you? Like, I'm not judging, but in a, in a really just, cause like sometimes I think people might just do it because they think that's what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not enjoying it. Yeah. They're enjoying it. They're doing it and it's in a healthy way and they're not compromising, you know, other aspects of their life. Like, sure. I support you, but really just trying to make them understand like it's, it's progress. It's not perfection that. We yes. Want. 
Yeah. So I don't think she expected to hear that, but when people work <laughs> with me, they, they get all the tough love and they get my yeah. honest opinion. I don't really coddle anyone, but I, I just said, I hate it because you're not going to be able to stick with it. So let's just find something else. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move on to talking about weight loss medications. And I know we can dedicate a whole episode to this topic. <laughs> I wanted to bring a doctor, someone who's actually qualified to talk about this and not Gwyneth Paltrow or anyone else. <laughs> and I want to get started. We're in a, in a period of time where these things are being sold on the streets. There are celebrities taking them. How did we even get to this situation? Yeah. So it's important to understand that, you know, these medications to treat obesity have been around for some time. It's not just that they magically appeared from the ground, you know, last year on TikTok. Of course, some of our more efficacious medicines have been approved more recently, but, you know, we've had other medications that we've been using. And so it's not something novel or new. I think that social media has uh, blown the popularity out of the park as far as these medications are concerned. Um, the thing that I really struggle with is just how it's that messaging is coming across on social media and through other outlets that, you know, these medications are a quick fix. Like take this medication, you'll lose weight. It's like all of the messaging that we definitely as, um, you know, evidence-based physicians and providers, we are trying to get away from this is, you know, these are not quick fix medications there are certain criteria, of course, that are, you know, I don't control these criteria. They're set by the FDA and insurance companies follow that criteria as far as coverage is concerned. You know, these medications are not without their risk and they really need to be prescribed with due diligence and appropriate uh, clinical oversight. So, but unfortunately, that's not what's happening. We're seeing a lot of like, compounded versions of these medications, being yeah. injectable medications um, being given out. I don't even know what the oversight is for these clinics. I actually don't even know how they're doing it because the medications are under patent. So I'm not really sure how you're getting quote unquote, the recipe to make the compounded version. So I think the medications, unfortunately, have received a lot of bad press as far as their quick fix or kind of only hear about like maybe some of the more like severe adverse effects that patients might be experiencing it's a very like one-sided view when in reality, these are evidence-based medications that have gone through clinical trials that have been approved. There's, you know, considerations that have to be made about who's the best candidate for the medication. Will they have coverage for it? There's cost, you know, factors that are associated with it. And just at the end of the day for me, like making sure the medication is safe for my patient, like that is the most yeah. important and making sure that my patients are ready, you know, at that point where they um, were embracing medications, because not everybody that comes to see me wants to be on medications and nor do I sit there and say like, you must be on medications. Again, it's a personalized approach and really respecting my patients' wishes and, and trying to work with them in the confines of what their goals are to help improve their health outcomes. And so, you know, there's oral medications or tablets or capsule medications that we've been using for some time. And then of course, there's the newer medications that people hear about. It's important to understand that Ozempic, even though it's a diabetes drug based on marketing of how that is from the pharmaceutical company, it's actually the same medication as semaglutide, which is also in Wagovi, which is... So one of them is approved for diabetes in 2017, and then the same medication was approved for um, the treatment of obesity in 2021. So it's kind of... And those not, are both injectables, right? They're both once a week injectables. So Ozempic, you know, the you hear about Ozempic more because there was actually when Wagobi got approved, and I, I just want to really be clear, I do not have any affiliation with pharmaceutical companies. I've received zero dollars from any pharmaceutical company. I'm just using the brand names to set an example of kind of explain where the confusion kind of comes around with that messaging about it being a diabetes drug being used for, for obesity management and weight loss. 
So yes, Ozempic technically is approved for type 2 diabetes in 2017. What happened is when Wagovi got approved in 2021, there were manufacturing issues and just this kind of increase in wanting these medications or prescriptions for these medications that there became a shortage. And since Ozempic is the same medication as Wagovi, because they're both semaglutide, and then, you know, Ozempic was being prescribed, quote unquote, off-label. And so there was you know, supply shortages and popularity really created a lot of like headache for patients and physicians and providers alike. And of course, the social media gods picked it up and decided to kind of advertise that, yes, this is one of our most efficacious medications for um, treatment of obesity, which results in in weight reduction. We haven't actually seen this type of weight loss with some of our other agents. There's a lot of inter-individual variability, even in clinical trials. Like, you know, not everybody responds to these medications as robustly. Some people respond even more robustly. And then there's like the average. And so the popularity soared, but it's important to understand that these are, you know, pharmaceutical medications. These are not like your over-the-counter quick fix supplements. This is not your fat fat burner that you see. I hate that word, you know, on supplement shelves. These are actual treatments for chronic disease and they're meant to be prescribed in conjunction with comprehensive lifestyle management. They're not meant to be standalones. Okay. What's the mechanism of action of the medication? Yeah. So when we're talking about Ozempic and um, Wagovi specifically, so it's a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So GLP-1 is a hormone that's made in our body in response to eating a meal that helps with, you know, a lot of different, we have a lot of different areas in our body that have GLP-1 receptors, but it really kind of helps with satiety signaling. And the issue in our body, so the one might say, well, if our own body makes GLP-1, why do we need this receptor agonist? Well, in our own body, that GLP-1 is actually degraded very quickly within minutes. It doesn't stick around long enough to exert its effects. But when you take the receptor agonist, the medication, the injectable, it really creates um, like super physiologic activity of the in on the GLP-1 receptor. I'm I'm using very science-y terms, but what I'm saying is that this is not possible from your own body alone. This is why the medication has, it has such a hot, long half-life that it's dosed weekly. So it's exerting right. a stronger effect than like what your own body can do. And it really works. We know for like obesity treatment and, and weight management, it really um, works in the brain. Like I said, there's also other areas where the receptors are present. And we know we have data in patients with type 2 diabetes that, you know, GLP-1 receptor agonist use is protective of reducing the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. So we don't have that data yet for obesity. It's coming. And it's important to understand that this class of medications, it's not just Ozempic. We've been using this class of medications for the treatment of type 2 diabetes since 2005. So there's a lot of different agents that are under this um, category of GLP-1 receptor agonists. These like medications did not just like sprout overnight. <laughs> like right. it kind of seems like on social media. So you know, it's it's very interesting mechanism. I mean, you know, there's two GLP-1 receptor agonists approved for the treatment of obesity. One of them is liraglutide under the brand name Saxenda. And then the other one is semaglutide under the brand name Wagovi. Now there is another medication, maybe some of your followers or listeners have heard about called Munjaro or terzapatide. And so that is a like, quote unquote, first in its kind medication, because it actually works on two different um, types of receptors. It has ability to work on the GLP-1 receptor and also the GIP receptor. These are gut hormones and they're involved in like hunger or satiety, hunger signaling. And so it's really important for people to understand that, you know, again, there's their medications. We want to make sure that they're being prescribed under the appropriate situations. They're not quick fixes. The lifestyle piece of it really still matters. And yeah. uh, 
these are all tools that are meant to be used together to help improve patients' health outcomes. And so when I, if I were to take this medication, I would feel fuller with a smaller meal. Is that correct? So it, I think it, it exerts a lot of different effects. So I hear from patients and it's very interesting because there is a lot of inter-individual variability in like how, you know, patients perceive like hunger and satiety cues or kind of that craving and that wanting cues. And so, you know, I hear from my patients that it's easier for me to eat a smaller portion. When I used to have to eat three plates of food to feel satiated, I can eat what what they would consider a satiating amount for them now without having to struggle because you know they're really trying they're like I know I probably don't need to eat this much but my body is telling me that I need to but now they're not struggling against those um, that neurohormonal dysregulation so I have patients that find it easier to um, you know manage portion control it's the reward cravings and wanting part of it is very interesting I have patients that would tell me, you know, prior to starting the medication that they would just constantly crave and want like certain types of foods, like salty foods or sweet foods, or if they were in like a situation at work where somebody brought all this dessert and like they, in their kind of um, current situation might have more than they anticipated to have, but now they're able to have that one piece of, you know, something and they feel okay with it. It's like, they're not fighting their biology anymore. And so it is very interesting. And I think the medication for the patients that have those like really strong biological drives, like one of my patients was like, I'm just hungry all the time. Like, I promise you, doc, I'm really trying to eat like balanced meals. I'm really trying to, um, to eat on a regular basis. I'm not skipping meals, but I'm just like, I can't get full. And I, I mean, I can't get full and I, I feel hungry, really hungry in between meals. And it's like almost this like kind of um, the food noise turns off or the light switch turns off. And it's like, oh, I don't have to struggle against that anymore. I can make... Mm-hmm you know, healthier decisions for myself. And so it really does help with that neurohormonal dysregulation. It's very, I think it's really liberating for patients that they no longer have to, you know, fight against these drives that they thought they were all their fault because this is what people would tell them. Like, why are you hungry all the time? Or should you really be eating that third plate? Like all these like judgmental things that people would say to them, their families or even healthcare providers. And so, you know, I do think that the medications are very useful tool for for patients to help them. And I will say, because they're not fighting against those biological drives, it actually makes it easier sometimes for them to work on those lifestyle factors where they're, you know, able to focus their time and energy on other aspects of it. It's liberating. It's it's very fulfilling for my patients. Yeah. Prior to having my current business, I worked at a medically supervised weight loss clinic and we used the earlier medications, Contrafe, Saxenda. And that's exactly what I would tell people. I would say, when you go on the medication, this is the time to work on habits because you're much more comfortable with your hunger levels. You're much more in a position to create healthy habits without the hunger, without the constantly thinking about food. And that's where it really is a tool, which I think is the part that people miss sometimes it really does not create a reduction in weight in and of itself. It creates a suppression of appetite, maybe some delay in how quickly food moves through your system. And so you stay fuller longer, but at the end of the day, the medication is not, like you said, a magic bullet. It doesn't really do anything in and of itself to magically make the weight disappear. I mean, I have patients that are struggling with lifestyle changes and they're probably not having as robust of an effect with the medications as they probably could. And mm-hmm. 
And we really work, I work with them one-on-one and then you kind of see like the tide turn. You're like, okay, like this is, this is where they're at. This, these improvements are now allowing for the medication to work more effectively. So it's, again, I always emphasize to patients like that lifestyle piece of it has to, like that never leaves the conversation, nor should it ever. The part I struggle with, of course, is seeing all the headlines that are, this is a quick fix and you can eat anything you want. And right don't have to make any changes. It's like, but this is, I think that just makes things worse for people with chronic diseases like obesity, because it's again, perpetuating that, like kind of that stigma that this is like something that you should be just overcoming with willpower alone. Or like once you've lost weight, like everything's better. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. I, I definitely struggle with that kind of messaging. Yeah. And I think this ties back into one of people's main concerns or question is what happens when I come off of the medication? Will I gain the weight? And the answer, in my opinion, and this is what I tell my patients is, yeah, if you haven't made any changes, if nothing happened in the time that you were on the medication and your eating habits didn't improve or the lifestyle factors weren't worked on, you will likely gain the weight back because appetite will return and nothing has changed. However, if someone takes the time to really establish good habits and sustainable habits that they can stick with, I have seen many people come off the medication and maintain the weight because the foundation is there. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely going to be a subset of patients where coming off of medications with a strong lifestyle foundation can help them maintain that weight loss. I mean, what we see in trials is that you know, in clinical trials for medications to treat obesity, the everyone gets like the placebo group and the intervention groups get the same kind of lifestyle modifications at counseling. And, you know, we do see a subset, a majority of individuals when they do come off of the medication completely that they would have rebound of their weight. And so, you know, like you mentioned, like that is, you know, biology returning or that those kind of dysregulation really returning. It, it's like your body remembers. It's not like it reads that to a new set point, quote unquote, set point or reset, like the the circuit, I should say. But, you know, my goal always is when patients are in maintenance, like, can we get them to the lowest dose possible that they can maintain their weight with the lifestyle factors? And if patients really want to come off of medications, you know, I counsel them that these are, you know, medications to treat a chronic disease. It's likely that you'll need to be on them long-term, but personalized decisions, other factors might come into play. And if patients really want to try to have a trial off of medications once they're in that maintenance phase. You know, we want to do it under medical supervision. We want to make sure that if they're struggling or if they're having weight rebound, that we work on addressing that. We can't just, again, stop medications and send them on their way right. and see them in a year. But we should say these medications are indicated for long-term use. They're they are. For I mean, lifelong, yeah. I mean, if we stop, um, if we change nothing, you know, like diabetes medications or blood pressure medications abruptly, you're, you could have rebound of high blood sugars and high blood pressure. And so we really don't view this any different. And I think it takes a lot to get that messaging across and for people to grasp their mind around that concept, because that's not what they've heard their entire life. And even all these headlines in society are just like, oh my God, like, please stop. Like, it's, you know, it's like, you're not making it any better. Like, yeah, it's really making it harder to to have people recognize um, obesity as a chronic disease. It's not debated in our community of of evidence-based obesity medicine professionals, but even in our own like wider medical community, there's people that don't accept it. Um, I think it's getting better. And then of course, in society, it's like a wild, wild west. Yeah. What do we know about complications and kind of long-term effects? Yeah. So 
let me just say this. I will say that, you know, there are certain kind of like stronger contraindications to taking the medications. I think for the neuroagents, some of the more common side effects do include um, GI symptoms like nausea and constipation is what I really see in my patients. Typically, it starts with just starting the medication itself and dose escalation. And again, this is why medical supervision is needed. We're not taking people from zero to 60 in like a month, right? Like it has to be this gradual dose escalation, making sure that patients understand or making sure that patients are doing well, they're tolerating the medications, if they're having side effects, what can we do differently? And of course, if they're not able to tolerate the medication, then you know, we have to take, we, we want to take them off of it because, you know, it's always a risk benefits discussion and we don't want, we always want to make sure the benefits outweigh the risk of any treatment for that matter. And so that's why, you know, doing it in a very supervised setting is important. And that's, I worry that the medications are kind of being prescribed and there's no like appropriate clinical oversight. Yeah. Right. All right. I know we have to wrap up. So I'd <laughs> love for you to tell my listeners where they can find you and follow along. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Plantel. As you know, I love um, eating plants. So that's <laughs> that little, worked out well for you. Yeah. Plantel. Yeah. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at the same name. So please feel free to, to join in on the conversations. We'd love to have you a part of the community. And really, I, I do just try to provide practical evidence-based information so that people you know, can really cut through the noise and be informed and talk to their own providers or physicians about you know, treatment options for their conditions. getting into the hot topic of weight loss medications. And yes. I really wanted to follow up and go a little bit deeper. A few people submitted questions. So maybe we can answer those as well. Yeah. And just kind of close the loop on yeah. it. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Let's do it. Okay. So let's kind of take a step back. You talked about it on the podcast a little bit, but give us the big overview of what these medications are, like what are the different types and what exactly do they do in the body? Yeah. So, you know, we've been using medications to treat obesity that result in weight loss for years now. It's not, you know, of course, there's a lot of the more popular medications you see on social media, like in the the news, but, you know, really we've been doing this for years. Actually, the first medication was approved in the 1950s, which is fenteramine. There were others on the market. Of course, they got pulled for a various number of reasons, but I would say that the most efficacious medications have really, you know, been approved for the treatment of obesity, like in the last couple of years. And, you know, there's medications that we use on label and off label to treat obesity. And so there's pill medications that are the older kind of older medications. And then there's the, what we call the injectable or subcutaneous (laughs) injections that are once a week, a lot more user-friendly as far or patient-friendly because you're not having to take uh, something every single day. The medications have a long half-life. And so you've probably seen, everyone that's listening, you've probably seen the craze about Ozempic and Wagovi and then of course, Monjaro. And so those are kind of the three that come to mind when we talk about these subcutaneous injections. But it's really important to understand that so the GLP-1 receptor agonist class of medications, which is where Wagovi and Ozempic fall under, these medications have been around for almost two decades. You know, it started off with exenatide, which is medication that was approved in 2005 for diabetes. And there's been a subsequent number of medications approved for the treatment of diabetes. And then also I should add that we, Wagovi actually isn't the first GLP-1 receptor agonist approved for obesity. There's another one called Sixenda. That's a daily injection. So, you know, we've been using this GLP-1 receptor agonist class of medications for a number of years, and there's different ones that are available. 
but it really wasn't until like the last decade or so that these medications have been approved for the treatment of obesity. And so what these medications are essentially doing are working on receptors in our body. We have GLP-1 receptors in our body, especially like for when it comes to weight management, they're in the brain and so mm-hmm. in other places as well. And so they're they're working on these receptors kind of at a super physiologic activity than what our own body is capable of. So and that's a body, hormone, yeah. right? GLP-1 yeah. is, GLP-1 is yeah. a gut hormone that we produce in response to eating. But the issue with our own GLP-1 is that it's degraded pretty quickly. Like there's another enzyme. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting into the weeds here, guys. <laughs> There's another enzyme that really just kind of like chews it up and, and degrades it. So it doesn't have like a very long effect. There's And so pharmaceutical companies have kind of capitalized on trying to prolong the effects of, of GLP-1 by creating medications. There's some oral medications that actually like inhibit their, their, the inhibitor. And then of course, there's a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And so, you know, we think that they work on areas in the brain, especially to help with appetite and energy regulation, energy intake regulation. And that's kind of how we think about them in the weight loss space, I should Mm -hmm. say. But of course, there's other aspects, other areas of the body. Um, You know, patients with type 2 diabetes, they've been shown to kind of reduce the risk of heart disease. And so again, like like the whole point of this is saying that these GLP-1 receptor agonists have been around for a while. But if you were looking in the news or the media, you'd think they probably just popped up yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) But they did it. Yeah. Which adds to like the magic kind of halo that they have like look at this brand new thing where it's really not that brand new and it's been around and it's just like a newer version of it that's it is producing greater weight loss than the past this contrave and all of those other medications yeah so i would say you know if we had to think about like the most efficacious medication prior to the approval of wagobi for obesity treatment it was probably qsimia mm-hmm. and I, I want everyone to understand something that because i see this a lot and i get so annoyed but you know ozempic is semaglutide wagobi is semaglutide so basically the pharmaceutical so whenever a medication is approved for a different disease process, they have to get a new name. So in 2017, semaglutide was approved as Ozempic for the treatment of type two diabetes. And then it had its own set of clinical trials for the treatment of obesity with, and weight loss. And so it was approved and semaglutide was approved in 2021 under the brand name Wagovi for um, the treatment of obesity. And so it's the same medication. So whenever people are like, oh my gosh, Ozempic's a diabetes drug, why are we using it for, to help with weight loss or whatnot, you're like, well, it's actually the same medication. It's just two different brand names. Now, I will say that the medication Munjaro, which is also a once-a-week injectable, also known as terzepatide, that's actually a medication in its own class. Like, we don't actually have anything like it on the market. Like, it's the first of its kind because it actually works on two different gut receptors. And so that is only currently approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. But we are anticipating that it, it'll get approved for the treatment of obesity under a different brand name later on. So there's a lot of confusion on the semantics of these medications. And yeah, and it, it, yeah, it can get kind of, you know, like a little weird. Well, yeah. I think part of it is also that there are doctors prescribing it off-label for people who don't have diabetes. So, okay, so just to kind of make everyone clear and on the same page, there are these two general types of medications right now, Manjaro and then Ozempic and Wagovi go into their own bucket. Someone asked about Orlistat. So we should clarify mm-hmm. that these are totally different as far as mechanism of action. Yeah. So Orlistat works by inhibiting absorption of fat in the gut. So 
it's completely different. You know, it's not working on central areas in the brain. It's an older medication. It first was, you know, under the brand name Xenical, which is like the prescription version of it. And then it was approved over the counter. I remember because I was in college and they're like, weight loss medication approved under the brand name Ally. Yes. So yeah, it's completely different. I will say I personally don't use Orlistat um, very often. I think what I've seen sometimes is that one of the more common side effects of these GLP-1 receptor agonists is constipation. And Orlistat could be used to kind of offset that that side effect. But I've never used it. I've never used it personally. It's not, you know, the most efficacious. It has a a lot of GI upset and side effects and patients don't really tolerate it very well or patients. Mm -hmm. And I would kind of be hesitant to use it in my patient population. So yeah, it is. Can lead to malabsorption too, because it really impacts how quickly. Yeah, vitamins. Yeah, exactly. So so we have to, um, so there's a lot of considerations to be made. Um, Okay. Unfortunately, you know, it's like, it was funny because uh, I had an insurance company that was like, has the patient tried Orlistat? Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, okay, <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, no. no. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I've worked with several doctors in, in the medical weight loss setting and no one is prescribing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't really, I, we have other efficacious medications, even using things off label or like, compo- you know, breaking up the components of Qsemia, especially because again, mm-hmm. Qsemia. I mean, there's a program that, you know, if the insurance doesn't cover it, you know, it's like $99 a month, but that still could be cost prohibitive for patients. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as an obesity medicine doctor, we have to get creative sometimes in what we use just to help our patients, Mm -hmm. right? At the end of the day, like this is about making sure that the treatment's affordable, accessible, and something that they can, you know, really continue in the long term. Okay. So who are they for as far as the criteria? Because there is very specific criteria that someone has to meet in order, even though it's prescribed to pretty much anyone now, but there is criteria that someone has to meet in order to be eligible and a good candidate for it, which is based on research, right? Research and- Yeah, so So, who is it for? So these are FDA criteria and um, I will say it's BMI based. Um, So I can't, you can't get around it because this is what the, especially the the injectable medications, this is like what the insurance company uses. They go based on the FDA indication. And so it's approved for anyone with a BMI of 30 or greater, or if you have a BMI of 27 or greater and what's called a a comorbidity like diabetes or fatty liver disease and what else, high blood pressure, heart disease, there's obstructive sleep apnea. So those are the criteria that insurance companies use to approve the therapy. And that's what we really stick by. Um, Of course, it's a, you know, it's not just like somebody comes in and I'm like, okay, this is your BMI. We do a, you know, BMI is not a perfect measure. It's really great at the population level. Individually, there's a lot of other factors that we take into account when it comes to like really assessing how someone's baseline health is. But we we mostly, especially if we're asking for insurance coverage, like you have to really stick to the criteria because there's no way around it. Right. Can't lie. Can't lie. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And so let's say someone's starting on it or they're thinking about starting the medication. Maybe their doctor already talked to them about that. What are some of the best ways? Not, I don't want to say get the most out of it, but basically yeah. do it in a healthy, sustainable way that actually makes sense and doesn't throw someone into very erratic eating habits. It does significantly impact appetite. So it does lower appetite. It suppresses. It also slows down gastric emptying a little bit. So food stays yeah. longer in the system, right? So I would love for you to talk about when someone starts the medication, what else should they be doing? simultaneously. Yeah. So I think 
the first step even to like take it one step forward from that is that, or backwards from that is that, you know, whenever a patient comes to me, we do a full assessment. We talk to them about their medical history. We want to make sure that they are. So what I do is I talk to my patients, I go through their medical history. We look at their labs and then we say, well, based on what you've told me, these X, Y, and Z are, you know, good options for you. And X, Y, and Z are probably not good options for you because of, you know, whatever contraindication, because there's some kind of, you know, strong contraindications to the medications as far as, you know, what contraindication means is that we don't use the medication in that patient because they have a medical condition or something that can get aggravated by using the medication. So that's like one thing that we have to really consider. Can you give a couple examples of what those are? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, this is an FDA like contraindication, although I don't think this has been like heavily reported in humans. I think it was mostly in animal studies or rats. But uh, medullary thyroid cancer for the GLP-1 receptor agonists, especially okay. uh, patients with a specific type of endocrine syndrome called multiple endocrine neoplasia 2. Okay. So we don't use it in patients with that syndrome. And I have yet to encounter that, to be honest with you. Okay. Most of my patients, like it's a very rare, you know, syndrome. And so we don't, we don't encounter that. In patients with pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas, which is one of your organs that, that secretes insulin and glucagon and also makes digestive enzymes. If they've had a history of pancreatitis, you know, kind of digging into the history about why is that happening? You know, you know, what was the reason for it, especially if it was associated with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, which I will tell you, I also work in the hospital. I take care of a lot of pancreatitis patients. Alcohol and gallstones are the most common cause. I have yet to see a like pancreatitis case from a GLP-1 mm-hmm. receptor agonist. Okay. So I haven't seen it yet. All right. And I'm so, telling you, take care of a lot of patients yeah. <laughs> with pancreatitis. Okay. Um, and then, you know, patients are having like gallstones or kind of um, like what was called biliary colic, which is like pain in the right, right upper abdomen um, after you eat because maybe a gallstone is getting in the way and, and it's, it's causing your gallbladder to get aggravated. You're more mindful of using these medications. You definitely want to get that worked up because if there's, you know, patients are at higher risk of developing gallstones or acute cholecystitis that they get in the right, wrong spot with like rapid weight loss. And so we want to be mindful, of course, at the gastroparesis, which is slowing up the gut, you want to be mm-hmm. mindful of, you know, is this really the right medication, especially these injectables? Right. Med- yeah. So there's a lot of like, this is like okay. all of the things that go through my head. And this is like, just for the kind of, there's even more, but for the oral therapies, you know, if they have heart disease or really uncontrolled blood pressure, or like, do they have kind of baseline, you know, like nausea for any reason for, for or whatever. Um, is that one cause. And so we have the biggest side effect. Yeah. So nausea is probably the most commonly reported side effects. So something to consider for going back to your original yeah. question, like how do we make sure that patients can be successful on this treatment? So one thing is making sure that whoever you're working with goes, starts low and goes slow. Like this is not a medication that we like go from zero to 60 over the course of like a month or even a couple of months, right? Like in clinical trials, the medication dose was up titrated monthly. So we're starting like, for instance, let's give you an example of Wagovi. It starts at 0.25 milligrams, which is the smallest dose. And it goes all the way up to 2.4 milligrams. So you can understand that there's, you know, at least like several dose escalations there. So we're not going from 0.25 to 2.4 the following month. So whoever you're working with, make sure that they understand like what are are you having any baseline GI symptoms? You know they need to they need to know that because if they if you are are they uncontrolled? Is this something even that um, is okay for you to start at this point? Are there other therapies to consider? And then really, I monitor my patients definitely pretty closely during the dose escalation phase and making sure that they're not having 
you know, GI symptoms that are impairing their ability to eat, mm-hmm. right? Where we people still need to eat. We're not yes. trying to make people yes. not eat, like which is common. Uh, people really feel a huge, especially in the beginning, big suppression yeah. of their appetite. They do, they do. So you know, we want to be mindful and say, like, we can need to stay hydrated. Like, so so those are things to consider because you know, there's a lot of inter individual variability. Like some of my patients are on the lowest dose, and they have you know lost ten percent of their total body weight at the lowest wow. dose. And some of my patients do require, you know, higher dose escalation mm-hmm. to, to really start seeing the results. And so everyone's a little different, you know, and we, yeah. and, and especially in my patient population, they're a little bit more, they're a little older, they're a little bit sicker. And so I really am like cognizant of like, Hey, you need to tell me if you're not feeling good. You need to tell me if like you're queasy, you're nauseated, you're constipated, like your right. diarrhea, like I need to know. And so, th- so whoever you're working with, if anyone's listening and they're thinking about starting this medication, like really making sure that they understand, like, what are your baseline, any GI symptoms, like what your history is, you know, this is not one of those medications that you should just walk into a med spa and get a compounded version, which I do not recommend, by the way, guys, I have a whole post on this on my page. So if you're interested, you can check that out. But I, you know, this is not something you just like walk in or get in a <laughs> frame in the mail yeah. from a random pharmacy somewhere or, or clinic. Yeah. There's a lot of considerations. And then the lifestyle piece still matters. I want everyone to understand that part. To be successful with these medications or to get the best kind of bang for your buck, you know, the lifestyle part is still very, very important. This is not like what you see on the news. It's not Hollywood's next weight loss drug. Like right. this is a therapy that's meant to be an adjunct to lifestyle. All the you know, clinical trials have like lifestyle as a foundation, both the placebo groups and the the treatment groups got lifestyle therapy. And so mm-hmm. it's we want to make sure that we're building those healthy habits, you know, and the medications can really help with building the healthy habits because it helps with the food noise. It helps kind of drown out the food noise so that you can hone in and focus in on what you're supposed to be doing. And so that's where the medications I think are really, really helpful. I have two questions for you. One is someone's not feeling hungry at baseline. They're gaining weight. They're not able to control their weight, but hunger is not an issue. Would the medication still help them? And then my second question is, what would you say if someone is doing the lifestyle piece or taking the medication, maybe they're nearing the highest dose, but they're still not seeing good weight loss? Yeah. So for your first question, if they're not hungry, and I still see, like, I have patients that are like, look, I'm not hungry, but I have lots of cravings or I don't feel satiated. So that I would say, I mean, the, yes, the answer to that question is yes. It's not just, you know, a hunger suppressor, like it really does help with like one of my patients that told me, uh, he, like, like they would feel like they would constantly want to graze, like, pe- you know, they would mm-hmm. pack their lunch, but when they went to work, people would bring stuff into the, yeah. <laughs> call it the like break room and, and it, they would want to graze all the time and really kind of eat more than they intended to. But it just really helped with that kind of behavior, like that kind of, um, that wanting of that food. And so you know, it, it's not just like a hunger, like mm-hmm. suppressor, it does help with cravings, it helps with um, improving satiety, it helps with portion control. So there's a lot of different things. Sometimes I wonder, and, and most of my patients do have some sort of, you know, in that realm of, of symptoms, I should say. And so I do think the medication is particularly beneficial for those patients. And then to your second question, you said that if they're almost near the maxis and they're not losing weight. So then, you know, we have to ask ourselves, like, is this the right therapy for the patient? Because it may not be. There's, if you kind of look at like, for instance, the step trials and look at like the semaglutide for the obesity treatment clinical trials, the inter-individual variability is that some people are really like hyper responding. And then there's some people that actually gain weight on the therapy. Mm -hmm. And I wish we had a test 
And I hope one day that we can figure this out. Tell in yeah, like based on these characteristics, based on these factors, we think these medications are what you'll most likely respond to. I really hope we have that. Yeah. But I, we don't have that test right now. And so, you know, that's a conversation to be had. Like, you know, of course, let's look at lifestyle factors, make sure that all of that's really plugged in, but, and make sure there's no other reversible causes, right? There could be medications that they're on that could be playing a role in weight promoting. You know, are they sleeping? Do they have undiagnosed sleep apnea? There's a lot of considerations to think yeah. about whenever we're not seeing the response to treatment, but if ultimately they're not responding, got to get them off of it and try something. New. Okay. Yeah. Someone asked a great question. It was, do you think we're talking about Ozempic, Wagovi, and Monjaro, these types of medications should be or can be used in PCOS in a similar way to metformin? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if patients meet the criteria, PCOS is, you know, we consider that a comorbidity. And so if they meet the criteria, then it can help, right? We're talking about modest weight reduction here. We can start seeing improvements in uh PCOS symptoms, even just like at the 5% total body weight loss. Mm -hmm. I know that first off, PCOS is not like I was, I think we talked about this on the podcast. It's like a lot of women with PCOS get told, oh, just come back and see me when you want to get pregnant. But PCOS is a metabolic disease, right? And so there's a lot of things that, you know, individuals with PCOS are at risk for down the line. And so the whole goal is to improve their health outcomes. If they want to have children, of course, improving the chances of fertility is really important. And that can be done with some modest weight reduction, but we're also trying to reduce the risk of diabetes mm -hmm. and heart disease and other complications. And so, yeah, absolutely. It can be used. I mean, I see, you know, patients with PCOS in my clinic and, you know, they come like from all different backgrounds and all different reasons. And so it's definitely a treatment that can be used. Yeah. And I think a lot of times you don't have to get to a specific number or a BMI certainly is not the measure that we want to yeah. look for. But a modest reduction can improve hormones across the board. Exactly. It can enhance fertility. It can help with inflammation and insulin resistance. So there could definitely be a benefit there. And would you say that they're fairly well tolerated? Like the side effects seem to be pretty yeah. self-limiting and manageable? I would say so. I would say that I'm trying to think right now, I haven't really had anyone that's had treatment discontinuation. Maybe we go a little slower. Mm -hmm. We're not up titrating every month, maybe it's every few months, maybe we're assessing response and we're like, hey, we're at, we're at a good point here. We're not going up anymore. I would say these medications, the injectable, I should say specifically, are probably some of the more safer medications for our sicker patient population because it is really tough. Um, you know, when you have quite a few um, conditions and you really can't take the other medications because there's contraindications, mm -hmm. these are like the, the go-tos in, the, in that patient population. And we didn't have that before, right? Right. So it is really good to have these. One thing I should mention with the PCOS though, if it's important to understand also that if you are trying to get pregnant actively, we don't use medications in that situation because they're, they're contraindicated in pregnancy. In fact, the medications do have to be discontinued at least two months before trying to get pregnant. We don't have enough safety data. You know, we don't know what this could do to a fetus or a baby. And so it's unfortunately, you know, we can't continue mm -hmm. or we can't start and or continue medications. Okay. Can yeah. you share a little bit about what we know in terms of long-term risks? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of benefit to be had. You know, these, like I said, like GLP-1 receptor agonist therapies have been around for two decades and like their safety and tolerability, it's been studied across a, a lot of different indications and studies. And so, I mean, I really can't think of like any 
major like prohibitive long-term risk. Like I said, if there's reasons in the immediate setting that there's contraindications or the patient's not tolerating it, like you would don't want to make them, you know, take it for a long time. Yeah. I would think overall this, this class of medications is, um, is safe and I'm really looking forward to like what other therapies are coming down the line. But of course that doesn't solve the whole issue of like access shortages and insurance coverage. They're very right. expensive out of pocket. Yeah. yeah. And they are indicated for long-term use, right? They are indicated for long-term use. So just like so that's, stopping that's a diet. That's that always comes up. Yeah. Like if I get off it, what would happen? Well, the way that they are designed, they're not meant to be discontinued, just like a blood pressure medication or other Correct. chronic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's an important the, thing. It's yeah. an important thing for people to understand. And that's something for us to also think about. Like, can the patient take this long-term? Like, is this going to be accessible for them? Does that mean that they're always going to be at the same dose? No, I think if they're stable things are looking okay. You can consider down titrating to the lowest dose eventually. But, you know, we're not talking about like start this for three months and then kind of stop yeah. it. Because, you know, we do see weight rebound. Those cravings come back. The hunger comes back. The satiety can come back. It isn't like, I wish the things would reset, but that doesn't really happen or seem to happen at least in clinical practice. Yeah. 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 So someone's asking how many months do most people use it for? for yes. Uh, right. As long, long as it's effective. And yeah. What, what, what about when they get to their like healthy weight or weight mm-hmm. that they're happy at? Yeah. So when they're at their healthy weight, we want to make sure they can maintain that healthy weight. So it's not like, okay, I've gotten there now. Cool. We need to make sure that like they can maintain it. And so, you know, I would say that I wouldn't personally consider down titrating until at least a year mm-hmm. maintained at that weight, but it's an individual conversation, right? We have to talk to our patients. And make sure, and but I set this expectation up front when I talk to my patients, like, look, these are long-term medications. I don't want there to be any confusion. And I do say that, look, I'm here to work with you and, and I'm a less medicine is more kind of person. Yeah. The lowest dose we can keep you on, the better. But we don't know what that looks like yet for you because everyone's a little different. And so, but long-term medications, you know, not three months, six months, we want to make sure that patients can maintain their weight for a, a period of time before we're like, okay. I think we need to start trying to think about maybe you know if they if they want to because for whatever reason want to down titrate off the meds maybe they want to kind of space out the dose a little bit mm-hmm. these are all kind of things that are like the spacing out the dose is little it's off label like it's, this is a seven day every seven day med but everyone's different some of my patients experience the effects longer than seven days and right. some of my patients kind of start to see it towards the end of the week that they're feeling symptoms again mm-hmm. yeah okay. I think we covered most of the questions that came in and this was really great. I want to really thank you for being yeah, here no and problem. sharing all this knowledge. And do you want to share where people can find you? Yeah, I'm active on Twitter and my Instagram at Dr. Plantel. I, you know, post a lot of different things <laughs> on both. So yeah, check me out. Okay, great. Thank you again. Yeah, no problem. Right. Take care.